Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hi, everyone. I'm Olivia Allen Price, and you're listening to Bay Curious. In the days and weeks after coronavirus took hold in 2020, the economy ground to a halt. And it quickly became clear that a lot of people in the Bay Area wouldn't be able to pay rent. I don't know what to do after that without jobs, without income. If folks couldn't pay rent, they'd get evicted, maybe become homeless, and they'd definitely be more vulnerable to contracting coronavirus. If tens of thousands of folks are forced from their homes, COVID will be much more likely to spread and have devastating consequences. States, local governments, even the CDC knew they had to do something. If we don't act now, there'll be a wave of evictions and foreclosures in the coming months. Here in California, Governor Gavin Newsom announced a moratorium on all evictions. Through May 31st, uh, there will be no eviction proceedings. And Congress handed out nearly $50 billion to help people catch up on missed rent. But those pandemic protections are expiring. And now, more than two years later, many tenants still can't pay. Evictions are on the rise. You might be left wondering how we got here and what we can do about it. Those are some of the central questions our KQED colleagues set out to answer in the second season of the podcast, Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. I listened to this entire series all the way through last weekend, and I learned so much. There's one episode in particular that I really wanted to share with you. So today on Bay Curious, you'll be hearing a sold out episode about the history and promise of the government's primary tool to help people pay rent, Section 8. Stick around. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hi there, I'm Randa Dilfettah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Falling behind on the rent is the primary reason for eviction. 
Now, Section 8 vouchers pay a portion of a person's rent to help them make it each month and still have money left over for essentials like medicine, food, transportation. It's not public housing. It's money the government pays directly to private landlords. But the sold-out team discovered it has some big problems. Aaron Baldessari and Molly Solomon explain. Kamani and his wife were like a lot of young couples just starting out. It was the early 2000s. He had recently started his career as a carpenter. She was a teacher. They were both in their mid-20s. But even with two incomes, they could barely make ends meet. We were living in a, like, a, a small, tiny little one-bedroom apartment with roaches, like basically a little small ghetto. Then their son was born. His wife stopped working to take care of him, and their budget got even tighter. And things was hard, but we started falling behind on rent. How far behind were you on rent at that time? I was $4,000 behind on rent at the time. They were living where they both grew up in Marin County, just across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. At that point in time, there was no way for us to survive in Marin County. It didn't help that it's one of the wealthiest counties in the country, or that their landlord was planning on selling the apartment they were renting. They couldn't figure out how they were going to pay the back rent and still have money for a deposit to move somewhere new. We would have been homeless, you know, so it, it would have been really bad. They thought about moving in with one of their parents or leaving Marin County altogether. But then they got some good news. So we got it. We were out doing something, um, running an errand. And on the way back, my wife got the email. They got what some have called a golden ticket, a Section 8 housing voucher. Section 8 is a federal program that helps low-income people afford rent on the private market. Kamani and his wife had put in their application nearly a decade ago, and they'd been stuck on a waiting list that never seemed to budge. When they finally got the news, it was like winning the lottery. We both looked at each other and was like, yes. I mean, it was like perfect timing. It was a huge opportunity for them. With Section 8, they would only have to pay 30% of their income towards rent. It was an epiphany for us because it was like life can go on now. Like, we, we, there's a path forward. They wouldn't fall behind on bills, and they'd have a chance to catch up. They'd have some room to breathe. So they started looking for a new place to live. And... We searched and searched and searched and went and visited and talked to people. And knowing that we had the housing voucher, we thought it was going to be easier because it was, a, it was a guarantee. A guarantee because most of the rent money comes from the federal government. It's usually deposited straight into the landlord's bank account. And we found out it was more of a hindrance than anything. It's what most Section 8 tenants discover. The voucher is not only hard to get, it's hard to use. These problems aren't new, and neither is Section 8. But over the past half century, it's become the number one way we subsidize rent in this country. As rents climb higher, advocates say we need to fix the problems with Section 8 and expand it to make it work for more people. Kamani and his wife have had a housing voucher for nearly two decades now. And any time they've had to move, it's always the same thing. They apply to dozens of places, visit a ton of apartments, and get the same answers. And every single time it was like, no, nope, nope, nope. It didn't seem to matter that they had good references from past landlords, even letters from neighbors. As soon as Section 8 comes up, 
you see like a glaze go over their eyes, like, okay, I got to deal with this conversation and move on to the next person. Some landlords told them point blank they wouldn't accept Section 8, even though that's illegal in California and a handful of other states. Those laws are hard to enforce, though, and landlords find all sorts of ways of getting around them, like requiring a credit score of 700 or above. You know, it was kind of smiling our face. Oh, yeah, but your, your credit score is low. But the bottom line is most people are on Section 8 because they're having issues financially and their credit is not very good. Or landlords would ask them to have an income that's at least three times the rent. It's like if I make three times the, the monthly amount, I'm buying my own place, period. That's it. Other times, there was an online application, but no box to check to say they had Section 8. Right? And you don't even get to talk to anybody or even see anybody or state your case. And it doesn't say you have Section 8 on the app, so you can't fill that out. Usually, though, they just never heard back. There was no explanation at all. So Kamani and his wife tried harder. They wrote cover letters and organized their references and documentation into nice, neat little folders. We would put a little picture, a nice little cute picture of our Black family for people to accept and like and maybe, you know, feel sorry for us. It was frustrating and stressful. To Kamani, it felt racist. And it really felt like redlining. Is That's how I felt about it, because they're just like, no, you know? Racial discrimination can be hard to prove, but a recent audit found it's a pervasive problem. The Fair Housing Advocates of Northern California conducted paired tests of white and black renters. They found that nearly 70% of the time, landlords in the county where Kamani lives refused to rent to black tenants or used more subtle behaviors, like leaving someone on hold for hours, never calling back, or steering black applicants away from certain neighborhoods. More than half the time, landlords did the same for voucher holders. To Kamani, this was not news. He and his wife had lived their whole lives in Marin County, a community where more than 70% of the residents are white and where the average household makes over $115,000 a year. It's hard to explain it to other people. We're Black in America. Every day, especially also for me, being a Black man and being very intimidating to a lot of people, it, it, every single day, it's like, when I meet somebody, I got to put a smile on my face to like, look, I'm not threatening. Holding a Section 8 voucher in his hands worsens the daily strain of trying to find acceptance. And it felt like that times 10, because this time we're looking for everyone's approval and it's we're trying to dress us up as the best we can to get accepted by people that we know maybe aren't racist, but just aren't as inclined to want us to be there. That was very, very, very hard. And that was, I think, probably the most defeating part of the whole thing for us. This discrimination is why we aren't using Kamani's full name or his wife's name. The experience of looking for a place to live has been so traumatic, they're afraid to do anything that might hurt their chances of finding a home the next time they have to start looking. Their struggles with Section 8 highlight some of the program's biggest failures. Only one in five who qualify for rental assistance actually receives it. 
meaning most people are stuck on wait lists for years, even decades. And when people do get off those wait lists, roughly a third lose their vouchers because they can't find any landlord willing to take them. That's partly because there's an unfair stigma around Section 8, even if it isn't backed up by evidence. Eva Rosen is an assistant professor at Georgetown University, and she wrote a book on Section 8. Landlords um, sometimes don't want to rent to big families. They often worry that voucher holders might be um, more likely to do damage to the home or that they might be noisier tenants. And again, none of this is really backed up by any kind of data, but the stigma itself is, is very real. This unfair stigma is made worse when you add in racism, the kind that Kamani and his family felt. Nationally, about two-thirds of voucher holders are people of color. In my research with landlords, they say things like, well, I couldn't rent to a Black person in this neighborhood because all of my other tenants are white and they would not like that. I think racism is a big part of the reticence that we see from landlords. Despite all these barriers, Kamani and his family were able to find a place to live. They've been at their current home for three and a half years now. And in the world of Section 8, it's kind of a unicorn. It's a single-family home on a quiet cul-de-sac in Novato, a wealthy suburb north of San Francisco. This is literally everything we could ask for. This is, we're so incredibly happy here right now in the place that we have. It's got three bedrooms, a two-car garage, and a big tree-lined backyard. There are parks nearby and great schools for their kids. And they feel safe here. Safety at school, safety coming home from school. You know, safety on the weekends, playing with their friends, you know, all of that. Only 14 percent of voucher holders live in affluent neighborhoods like this. Kamani and his wife know just how rare it is. It's 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 like we're living in a dream that we know are about to wake up from. We know at some point someone's going to shake us and be like, hey, wake up. That wake up call could come in just a few months. Their landlord told them they're thinking about selling, and their current lease lasts only until September. After that, there's no guarantees. It's all up in the air. Everything's very unsettled for us. When that time comes, they'll have to find another landlord willing to take them. They know from experience it won't be easy. When the Pruitt-Igo public housing development in St. Louis, Missouri opened in 1954, it was celebrated as a marvel of modern architecture. 33 towers, each 11 stories tall. With indoor plumbing, electric lights, fresh plastered walls, and the rest of the conveniences that are expected in the 20th century. But just a decade later, it was falling apart and had become a symbol of government mismanagement and neglect, drawing national attention for its horrible living conditions. Take this newscast from 1968. When the temperatures dropped below freezing earlier this week, water lines in several of the Pruitt-Igo apartment buildings broke and the subsequent flow of water turned into ice. At 2311 Dixon, a sewer line is broken, and now raw sewage bubbles out of the ground like a malevolent spring. On March 16, 1972, the first of its 33 towers was demolished. Not only St. Louis, but the rest of the nation is viewing with great interest the results of this experiment. 
President Richard Nixon saw the growing frustration with public housing failures like pruitt Igo, And so he took a turn towards the private market instead. Two years after that demolition, Nixon introduced Section 8. Again, here's Georgetown University professor Eva Rosen. You're not having um, to build public housing. You're not having to maintain or renovate a public housing stock. Um, And so it is this sort of very, in theory, economically efficient tool. Under Nixon, Section 8 was just a pilot program. But by the 1990s, the stage was set for it to grow. Public housing had gotten a real bad rap. And that's when President Bill Clinton really ramped up Section 8. Today I had the honor of signing the budget for programs to help the homeless, to give housing vouchers to empower the poor. His administration changed the name from Section 8 to Housing Choice Vouchers. And actually, in the title, you can very much note this emphasis on choice. Eva says that reflects one of the goals for the program. The hope was that people could use their vouchers to move to more affluent neighborhoods, neighborhoods with more resources, better schools, and more jobs. Public housing had become extremely segregated. By 1989, nearly 70% of the households were headed by people of color, mostly Black and Latinx women. And most of the housing developments were also in segregated and impoverished neighborhoods. And that was causing all kinds of problems, and it was leaving public housing residents with very little choice about where they ended up. But Eva says the program hasn't lived up to its promise of giving voucher holders a real choice of where to live. And a lot of that comes down to landlords when they choose to participate, and why. When we introduced these private landlords into this system, we sort of just assumed that they would play along, that they would want to participate. And that tends not always to be the case. For some landlords, Section 8 works really well. Eugene Zinchik and his brother own a real estate and property management company in San Francisco. And he's been renting to voucher holders for about six or seven years now. There's more stability in knowing that your rent checks are going to be coming, you know, whatever it is that happens. During the pandemic, most of Eugene's Section 8 tenants stayed put and the rent checks kept flowing in. But a lot of his tenants who didn't have vouchers, they left. Even without the coronavirus, Eugene says voucher holders just stick around longer. There's less turnover for a landlord. If there's less turnover, there's no rent that they're losing. But Eugene says the real benefit to landlords depends a lot on where the property is. He points to a new building he's managing in San Francisco's Bayview neighborhood. Even though he hasn't found a tenant yet, Eugene already knows it'll be someone on Section 8. Part of San Francisco is uh, extremely, extremely expensive. Bayview is still still semi-affordable or maybe still for a blue-collar family. He says rents here are about $1,000 lower than in other parts of the city. And research shows that in neighborhoods like this, landlords actually charge Section 8 tenants more than they would someone without a voucher. That's because when the government decides how much it's willing to pay for each voucher, it doesn't vary the amounts by neighborhood. It sets one standard for the whole city. So it's a pretty good deal for landlords in places like Bayview. So in Bayview, in my experience, the amounts that Section 8 pays are pretty much uh, competitive. But landlords in high-rent places could actually lose money. In at least half the neighborhoods in San Francisco, Section 8, what they pay per unit, is just not compatible with the market rent. Eva says those incentives have created an unintended consequence. 
Most Section 8 tenants are trapped in low-income neighborhoods. This is where you start to understand how the program, which was designed and very much hoped to provide tenants choice, actually sort of creates sort of an opposite scenario where they're being pushed away from the kind of neighborhoods that they might want to end up in and forced into neighborhoods that they that they don't necessarily want to be in. Eugene says even when landlords want to rent to a voucher holder, it's not that easy. You have to jump through a lot of hoops. What kind of hoops? Well, let's take a look. First, there are the forms for both tenants and landlords. You know, forms could be scary if you've never seen this form before. Let's say you do fill them out correctly. For about two weeks, you probably hear nothing. Then, hopefully, you get a call for an inspection. The housing authority needs to make sure these buildings are up to code. For that, you'll need to take the day off work. A lot of times you get a four-hour window for the inspector to come in. And if you have any questions, don't try to get anyone on the phone. Just talking to somebody, be waiting on hold for, for an hour. Eugene says it's like dealing with the DMV. You know, we've all been there, but we don't really want to do that unless we have to. The Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development held listening sessions with property owners across the country back in 2018. Most of the sessions were taken up by complaints. 82% said they had bad experiences dealing with their local housing authority. One of their biggest issues, how long it takes to sign up a new tenant. The whole process can take a month or two, time spent without collecting rent. For a landlord to just sit and wait for that tenant is not, is not reasonable especially if it's an individual like a mom-and-pop type of shop. So how do we improve Section 8? For tenants to have more choice, you know, the original goal of the program, you need more landlords with properties in more neighborhoods. Here's Eva Rosen. When we think about landlord participation, I think we need to think about carrots and sticks. That means tougher laws to prevent landlords from discriminating against Section 8 tenants and better enforcement. So that's sort of like a a stick, right? It's a slap on the wrist. It's a, no, you're not allowed to do this. And then there's the carrot. More voucher money for properties in wealthier neighborhoods. It's something the federal government is already trying. They're basing the rent on the zip code instead of one standard for the whole city. Because there's no way a landlord's going to participate in the program if they're getting less rent than they would get from a market tenant, right? An early test of the program showed it worked. More landlords in affluent areas opened their doors to Section 8. But in a few cities, there was a downside, too. Some landlords in low-income neighborhoods stopped renting to voucher holders. That led to a drop in the number of homes available there. Still, the results were promising enough that they've expanded it to two dozen cities across the country. That was Molly Solomon and Aaron Baldessari from KQED's Sold Out podcast. If you're interested in housing issues that affect us here in the Bay Area, I definitely recommend you check out the rest of their latest season. Special thanks this week to the Sold Out team, including Erica Kelly for editing that episode, Kiana Mogadam, Jessica Placek, and Aditi Bandlamudi. Bay Curious is produced by Katrina Schwartz, Brendan Willard, Sebastian Mignobuccelli, and me, Olivia Allen Price. We'll be back next week with another episode of Bay Curious. See you then. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. 
Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 